Welcome to Healing Wisdom, a Thursday morning talk show featuring guests sharing their stories and knowledge. We discuss the healing aspects of the arts, metaphysics, social justice, and adventure through all types of terrain. So join me, Pandora Peoples, here on WOMR 92.1 FM in Provincetown and WFMR 91.3 FM in Orleans. We're streaming worldwide at WOMR.org. My guest today is Jean Morrison, community activist, consultant, and strategist for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Jean sits on six boards. She's the board president of Amplify POC, co-president of the League of Women Voters Cape Cod, executive board member of the NAACP Cape Cod branch, on the board of the Massachusetts Women of Color Coalition, and more. Welcome, Jean. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Pandora. You've worn many hats since you received your master's in education and counseling from Cambridge, were a clinical director for residential behavioral health and day habitation, as well as the assistant general manager of diversity and civil rights for the Massachusetts Ray Transportation. What are your thoughts on the era we live in post-Trump administration, post-Capitol insurrection, post-Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signing the Stop Woke Act, which blocked and banned teaching African-American history, which includes political movements, the discussion of reparations, the landscape of history behind our current incarceration system and queer studies. What are your thoughts on the landscape that we're living in today? The first part of it, what is the landscape? The landscape is we have lots of challenges and a complex layer of challenges. So besides all the issues related to people of color and women, which we're here to talk about, there's there's the political issues and there are the social issues and health issues, social issues and health issues being like and the rates of suicide, the gun violence that we experience and all of that, as well as on top of that, things out of our control, like COVID and whatever the next thing is to come down the pipeline and the natural disasters. And so challenge is an understatement. You know, some people might say we're in dire needs, but I listened to Alice Walker give a talk not too long ago and she said something very, I think very profound to me is that We've always been in dire needs. The issue is in our, in society, there's always periods where you're in dire needs. The issue is really, what do you have for access to, for resources to address some of those needs? And I think in today's landscape, I feel like we're letting those resources slip away, slip out of our grasp. And so in today's landscape, I think we have to do more with more, not more with less. We've made so many accomplishments by race, so many accomplishments by gender, that when, and I started looking through women's history just to look at the timeline. I'm like, oh my God, you know, there's so much that's been done, so many milestones by individuals, maybe not systemically. So I think when I say we need to do more with more, there's so many more advantages that women have built on the disadvantages of others. And by that, I mean you and I here. So I give myself it as an example. So I have a master's degree as a woman of color. I was able to achieve that growing up in the 60s and 70s. My mother, compared to my mother, who has a master's and speaks three languages fluently. And when she graduated from her master's degree, she wasn't able to achieve and get 
the high level jobs. You know, I had a senior management position for the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority, the T. Like, how, and when I was there, it was 50% women and people of color in those senior seats. My mother had to work as a domestic initially. So that's what I mean by progress. So people, it's important to know our history. That's another thing that's important in landscape is that the audacity of any group of people to tell our children they cannot learn the history of this country and all the people in it is like cutting them off at the knees, especially girls, to not know they're more than what they see in the videos and on TV, over-sexualized. And, you know, although there are good examples of, of women doing good work, I think when I look at the young kids and I hear them talk and I see them on their phones, it's like, oh my God, take that away from them. Not the phones, but take it, reprogram the phones and put the information that you find when you research Women's History Month or even Black History Month or Latina, Latinx History Month or Native American History Month, any of them, you find they're not even the only people. They're the people that stand out the most. But behind them, so many shoulders that have been stood on and so many paths and doors that have been opened for people to be able to have those champions that we know. But if you just go into Cape Cod community, for example, and you start to talk to well, let's say women of color, since I'm a woman of color, but any women, you start to talk to them about the women in their life. You're going to find as many sheroes as you would find different women. You would find a cross mix of race, a cross mix of socioeconomic class, a cross mix of immigration status and so on. There are a lot of champions within us. So why aren't we a country that's living like that? That's my take on the landscape. We need to change the landscape because we have tools and the equipment and we have, I think, a surplus if we dig deep in ourselves. and Black woman who grew up on Cape Cod, where are we at on the local level? I grew up in Los Angeles, but it was surprising how much women's history and the history of people of color wasn't more integrated into the system. It, it was deficient. <laughs> well, if you think you grew up in California and it was deficient, I mean, you have three times the amount of people of color than we have right. in Massachusetts, maybe even higher. And so, where's Cape Cod stand? I, I feel like I have to be frank. Cape Cod is very white. And in fairness, the representation is much higher of white folks and white women than women of color. But more doors could open. I mean, I think people try. But why in 2023 do we have to keep reminding people we're here? We're here. So even if we're here in a percentage, you know, that collectively is 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 less than I'm gonna say less than ten percent. I should know these numbers, but I it depends on where you look. So I've been looking at a lot of things lately. But anyway, you know, it doesn't matter if there's one person in the room that is black, one person that is indigenous, one person in the room that is a new immigrant, if we're living in this community it makes sense to me that we're all part of the community. Meaning you have to have people feel included 
so that they're part in a, in a pr productive way, you know, because kind of like in school, if the teacher doesn't pay any attention to you, what do you do? You withdraw, you don't participate, but you still make up class. And when you tally the scores at the end of the day, those students that had no attention and didn't participate help bring down the score of the whole class, if that makes sense to you. So for me, I like to talk with analogies. I think that more doors need to open and women of color in particular need to be seen and included a lot more than we are because we're here. I get tired of going in spaces that it's always the same people. And I don't even just mean, let's, let's drop the color line for a little bit because some women who are white women might be from a lower socioeconomic status. They might be perceived as white, but really they come from a newer immigrant population to the table. And so we need to be much more inclusive and inclusive people don't understand what it means. It doesn't mean that I just pull up a seat and say, okay, here's the brown or black girl, right? She's at the table, we're good. No, it means full partnership. And that's really hard for people to get their heads around. Sharing a piece of the pie is another way to say it. People think that they have to give up something and you're not giving up as much as you are enhancing. If you think of it that way, that you're adding a richness to, to whatever the pie is. And on Cape Cod, I'm tired. I'm tired of reminding people. I'm tired of asking. I want people to see me. Now I'm at some tables that people do see me and I do feel included. And what I'll give you an example of, the League of Women Voters. So how did I get to be co-president? I never even considered the League of Women Voters. I didn't know who, who they were. And I missed out all of my life because now it's one of the most important organizations to me because of what they do, which is educate voters, but more important than that, they help give voters a voice. And it's very empowering. So legal women voters, they came to where I was, which was, I went to an immigration talk that they had at the NAACP. And so as a member of the NAACP, and I feel right at home, I saw that talk, I said, I'm going. Greeting me at the door, shockingly, were white women from illegal women voters. And they had a table set up inside and they hosted that event, but they didn't host it at Four Seas or some other place I might not be. They hosted it at the NAACP. So I went and then another member that looks like me that was tied to being alone in that organization brought me to a couple of other events and the people were nice, they were kind, they were welcoming. And so I joined. And when I joined, I was able to voice my opinion. I was invited to a board meeting, which I opened to members. And I was asked my opinion on a few things and they liked me and I guess they figured I was kind of smart. So, you know, next thing I know, they were asking me to be vice president and then eventually president. But the important part of that story is I didn't have to be somebody else. I was Jean Morrison, an African-American and indigenous woman who grew up on Cape Cod a family of strong women of color. And I was just myself, I spoke my word, I spoke my truth, I talked about issues that were concerning to me, of race and other things. It's not just race, but women of color at the table, we have to talk about race, because who else is gonna talk about it for us? And I know sometimes people say, oh, here they come. You know, and I don't like that to be only me, but it's important, I'm not gonna shy away from it either. So I, I have really a, a double, double-sided barrier, really, being a woman and then being a woman of color. So, I mean, it 
to be honest with you, it took me a long time to really get my head around women's issues because people can't get past the color. So someone, a white woman walks into the room, they see a woman, a woman of color walks into the room, they see a black woman or a brown woman or whoever, if they can tell that that's a woman of color. So you, you have to get past those stereotypes before you can even get to the, the issues of between men and women and how women are perceived. And so I guess we all carry these stereotypes as women and we stand, you know, I stand in solidarity with my sisters, regardless of, of skin color, including my white sisters, in that as women, we get these different labels put, put on us. And many of us could probably say there are different barriers. So, you know, you might, you might be a white woman and you're young, or you might be a white woman and you're over a certain age. So you're not pretty enough, or you're too pretty, or you get sexualized, or you have the, the racist view of who you are. And so well, in corporate America to me, that people that haven't evolved to understand those biases tend to treat us accordingly. So it can be uncomfortable at the very least, but in the worst case scenario, you can't be yourself. So you can't put the best foot forward. You constantly have to be on guard and be somebody else in, in corporate America. First of all, I would say, how do you combat that? Have more women CEOs, plain and simple. I'm not gonna hide about that. And including women of color CEOs. And if you can't get it right, then you don't deserve to have that seat. But the more women you have, and I don't think we should overthrow men, the more balance you have. And if women are 51% in this state, almost 52, so we should have 51% in the leadership, whether it be in corporate America or in the public sector or in state government, whatever it is, if you have a balance, people work together and they're less likely to be divisive because they recognize each other's value. The second thing is that women just have to stand their ground. Any leader today that doesn't understand those biases and, and how to empower a woman or anybody else in the workplace to be fully themselves and be their best, then they just don't know what's going on. They don't have a clue. They don't, they're not a good leader. There's just no way you cannot have the diversity a mixture of people to have your best foot forward. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Healing Wisdom on WOMR. I'm Pandora Peoples, and we're speaking with Jean Morrison, community activist, consultant, and strategist for diversity, equity, and inclusion. What are your thoughts on the national climate as the co-president of the League of Women Voters here in Cape Cod? Like, what are your thoughts on the national landscape redistricting, gerrymandering, and other attempts to make voting difficult via legislation? It doesn't, for me, it doesn't matter what political party a candidate comes from. Now the parties are divisive. So I say that kind of tongue in cheek. But in, in my real world, it really doesn't. It doesn't matter what party they come from. I believe in morality and civility. So a candidate for me has to be a moral character and civil character. That means they don't lie, cheat, steal, and do divisive things for people. The second thing is a candidate that I look for is a candidate that sees me, understands the issues that are concerned for me, and will fight for those issues. Now, that said, 
you probably want the same thing with two different people. So where do they find a balance? They find a balance in knowing the communities. I mean, if I can go out there and be in communities and know what different communities need and then decipher what's kind of the best thing for the league to focus on, you know, there is a middle ground for people. And for example, for the league, it's voter education, voter services, voter education, getting people out to vote and teaching people what they need to know. And that goes beyond how do you vote? That that means how do you how do you use the power of your voice? How do you bring your voice forward? Who are the candidates running for office and what do they have to say? So candidate forums, right? And then just educating voters. We did a redistricting forum to educate Cape Cod what redistricting was all about, what it meant, and what kind of results, where are the where where are the sort of danger zones, if you will. And for the Cape, they weren't as egregious as other places, but they were important to some people, which precinct they ended up in, right? So we educate the public on things like that. All of these forces trying to undo democracy. So democracy is set up so that we have a freedom of will to choose, right? People better pay attention to what's going on with voting and redistricting. It is very, very dangerous for this country. And so as the country's browning, as I call it, more and more diversity. You know, some people don't want that because maybe they feel that they won't win. This is about winning from the political landscape from where I sit. And I don't care if it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden. The issue isn't so much the candidates. The issue is what we're allowing as American citizens. We're allowing this to happen by not standing up against it. And those two things are very dangerous. It takes us back to before the civil rights movement, well before that, closer to the Jim Crow laws. You know, you already have mass incarceration as a problem with in particular African-American and Latino people second. You already have the issue of high infant mortality rate and maternal mortality deaths of Black women. The numbers are... Most wealthy Black woman still has disproportionate incidence of death and infant mortality rates than the poorest of white women. So they did, and across the education lines, they split it every which way you could. There's something wrong with that picture that's going on here. And it's a research issue. There's a lot of issues. They're all things we could do something about. And the redistricting that's never stopped. I mean, that redistricting is that we get manipulated. I don't know what we could do about it other than really mobilize our voices. And that's where collective voices are really important. As people of color, we can't fight this fight alone, but it's not just about us. What happens to one of us in our society happens to everyone, even on the other side of the world. So as people are impoverished and war-torn countries and things like that, that has a ripple effect, just like a tidal wave or an earthquake. There's a ripple effect. And sooner or later, it's going to impact us, right? So like the guns, the guns got out of control. America's always been, we were founded on guns. They stepped off the boats with guns, right? To, to get territory, to eliminate people, to get people in land, they would use guns. And even to bring people over here, you know, on the slave ships, they use guns and guns were part of American society. And look where it's got us today. I mean, that it's it's out of control. I know I know there's a lot of other factors, but because we've let this go, my point is because we've let this go, it's been how we were built. 
but we've 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 let it go unchecked for a long time. And then we decided we could make money off of guns. We're the largest exporter in the world of guns. Hello. They're not all here. They're in other places, but we still owe more guns than any place else per capita. I don't want to sound grim because I, I, I feel like we're, we're in dire times, but what happens when you're in dire times throughout history? If you go back to all of recorded history, throughout history, people get to that point is when they start to act and they start to make change. I'm very hopeful for the younger generation. There's still great people in this world. The thing is, for those of us that are in place and involved, especially during this Women's History Month, you know, I, I specifically mentor some younger women. And I think it's really important for them to see me and others, even my mother, who's 90, still, you know, demand the respect that they see her as a role model and let them know there are those who came before you whose shoulders that you're standing on. That's not to be taken lightly because some of those shoulders have been pushed down into the mud, you know, a few generations. So you're not even standing on ground at first. And, you you know, you have no footing. I think now in 2023, there are women that have a lot more footing than they did, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Women of color, sometimes we're still stuck in the mud, frankly. And we need our white sisters to see us. We can pull ourselves out. When we come out, let us stand on solid ground next to you. Don't have a step in another puddle or mud hole because the more we grow, the more you're going to grow. You know, women, the 51, almost 52% I talked about, women of color make up about, in Massachusetts, about 14% of that. So you're not going to reach the 15% minus 14 is what? You're, you're not going to reach it without us. And the sooner we recognize that, the sooner the men will learn. You know, you gotta push legislators. You gotta you gotta be out there and ask questions. Tell legislators, I'm um I am interested in health and my health and well-being. What legislation study, what legislation's being out there? If you know advocacy groups get with them to file a piece of legislation, you know, they don't need to they don't need to come up with what piece of legislation they're interested in. They shouldn't be, but they should be addressing and pushing legislation that we're interested in. But again, we don't exercise our right in this democracy. A lot of people dig their heads in the sand. It's really not that hard. It's just that people choose to not get involved. They don't do politics. I had to give a talk to a civics class at Dennis Yarmouth High School. And I gave him a little quiz. I said, okay, so uh, who is who is state government? And they looked and they didn't. I said, come on, someone must know who is state government. And then one person raised his hand and said, yes. And he said, we are. I said, right. And I said, so whose responsibility is it to make what we call politics, politics? And then they all answered, ours. And I'm like, okay, you all get the rest of the day off. So if fifth graders and 11th graders can understand that, where do we fail? Where do we lose? What's the point of teaching them? You brought back civics for a reason. Another thing I told them is civics has to become part of your life. And starting now is the right age. And what you think of as politics, get that out of your head. I started visiting nursing homes. I started doing walks for hunger. That's civic engagement. You see a problem in your community, you do something about it. You see people in leadership that have your vote 
to do something or not. Someone voted for them. They're in a, they're an elected position and it, just schooling them what that means. So you start that. It has to be the rest of your life. It's not just in the class, in the classroom. So, you know, I urge them and I'm saying the same thing for adults. Pick something that is meaningful to your life. Otherwise, you're not going to stay interested in it. But, you know, if you if you think they need to put sidewalks on the, your grandmother's street so she could stay healthy by going out and doing a walk and not getting hit by a car, then you go to the town hall meeting and you tell them and you find other people to tell them and so on and so on. And you never give up. You just keep you keep at it. You let them know that's their job. You demand they tell you what they're doing about it or not, because that's transparency. And by the way, if they don't, guess what? They're not going to get your vote next time. You know, so it's it's really important that we advocate for ourselves. And the whole healthcare thing, as women, try to find a woman who's a physician or a male doctor that really understands. I have some male doctors and I've trained them to listen to me because I'm paying either through my insurance or me and you were hired. I don't give them, I give them the respect that that's their profession, but you're going to listen to me. If I tell you I have a symptom, you're not going to tell me, oh, it's nothing. You're going to tell me what could it be? And then you're going to look and help me figure it out and figure out what should be done about it. Because I wasn't listened to at one point, it almost cost me my life. But it was a woman. It was a woman who listened to me and said, you need to see a neurologist ASAP. I'm afraid for you, quote unquote. She wasn't a neurologist. She was another kind of doctor because they kept sending me to different things that weren't helping. And she was the first one. I said, they think I'm nutty. You know, I'm crazy because I can't. I would see my notes. I would ask for my notes. I would see that I have a strange sensation that I have difficulty articulating. And she said, for her, those very words meant to her, there's a neurological problem that's probably serious. If a patient can't explain their symptoms, I, I don't know if it was my combination of my race and my gender, but everyone, they weren't listening to me. Really, the nick of time, I, I got to a neurologist who was a man, and I met with him many times where he talked to me about Obama and the drug problem on the Cape. Finally did a test that led him to send me to a neurosurgeon, which was a woman, and she right away sent me for tests that were different tests that hadn't been done, and some, some of them expensive. So people judge, can you afford it? You know what I mean? And she just looked at me as a patient who there's something wrong. I got to figure this out. And then they found it. That's serious business. It's literally life and death for women and a huge, huge disparity for women of color for life and death. And it's not fair. Can you talk about the Barnstable No Place for Hate? Barnstable No Place for Hate 2019 was established. And we had a community, we opened up with a community meeting. There's a steering committee. And we, we put together a community meeting to hear from the community. It, it was really centered around unity. How can we come together and close the gaps that happened because of hate? And one of the glaring things that came out of those community me meetings was people agreed that we needed to address issues of hate in the community, but they said, we don't know what to do. Tell us what to do. So myself and Chris Morin did some research and some investigating and, and another former um, person who used to live here, um, Kate Epperly. And we came across active bystander workshops and went to a couple and we thought, well, we could do this. 
And so we wrote a program that's been tweaked and tested and now is 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 pretty good. And it gives you basic principles that we call the five Ds of how you can stop or interrupt harmful behavior. We don't focus on any particular demographic. It's it's not um, anti-racism training. It, it's not to single out any one group. It's just hate. It's, hate is harm. And so we focus on harm doing, although we will t- tailor it to a specific demographic if people want us to. No matter what walk of life you are, no matter the situation of harm, it could be bullying. People think bullying is just kids, but no, adults are the worst at bullying each other and microaggressions and all that stuff. So, you know, we take people through two hour interactive where they actually have to role play, both the person being the aggressor and the other person. So you get to feel what it's like to have harm done to you, but you also get to experience what comes up for people. Everyone walks away with what we call a superpower. So they walk away with being able to do something, whether it's distract someone, delegate to someone else, document. Those are some of the five Ds. I think it's essential. We teach that there's something that every single person can do. And what you do is what you're comfortable with. My guest today has been Jean Morrison, community activist, consultant, and strategist for diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'll be posting a second podcast for International Women's Day. We have awesome programming all day long, Wednesday, March 8th for International Women's Day. And you can check out my hour show at 9 a.m. Wednesday. I've got over a dozen guests joining me. You've been listening to Healing Wisdom at Outermost Radio. All of our shows are podcasts at WOMR.org. Also check out HealingWisdomRadioShow.com and contact me at Pandora at WOMR.org. theme music is provided by Mazin. You can find her website at mazinmusic.com. That's M-A-E-S-Y-N 